Hello, and welcome to ClapperCast, the global film podcast, a weekly discussion of all things cinema. I'm your host, Diego Andalus, and today I'm happy to be joined by Carson Tamar. Hello, hello. And Paul Price. Hi. On today's episode, we are discussing the latest edition of the AFI Fest. From everything from documentaries to international features, English features, and our overall impressions with the festival. So in terms of documentaries, so which ones did you guys see that really caught your eye? Yeah, so this entire year, I feel like a broken record on this podcast. I honestly deal with these documentaries because I keep saying just like, this is an incredible year for documentaries. Wow, they're so good. Um, AFI Fest, again, just like a fantastic showcase of documentaries. Um, maybe not necessarily anything, you know, incredible best of the year status, but really, really solid list here. Um, I think especially this was a, such a great year for documentaries. Um, when it comes to documentaries that have what seemed like a very simple subject matter, but then ultimately find a much deeper meaning. There's a lot of examples here. Um, no Ordinary Man is about the life of Billy Tipton, but specifically not even necessarily really about his life, but the impact he had on the larger LGBTQ plus community. Um, that's a really engaging look. And I think that ultimate like deeper discussion, that more heartfelt, emotional, personal um, look at this subject matter and the effect he had ultimately makes a film like that more accessible than something like Sisters with Transitors, um, which is a documentary about women getting into the um, electronical music like genre, which I think that's a really solid documentary on its own. But ultimately something like No Ordinary Man, you don't have to necessarily care about the subject matter to really appreciate the film and find that deeper nuance within it. Um, another example is The American Sector. This is a look, just a very strange hour-long documentary, um, just showing where segments of the Berlin Wall have found their way to different communities in America, um, whether it's a college putting a part on display, um, to a mall, to even like there's a shop that like the owners just randomly bought one online and they just have this part of the Berlin Wall. And again, it seems like it's a very rudimentary, very simple plot. You know, here's this area. We're just showing where these are. But slowly the film finds more and more to say about these communities and about American society. And it creates this really beautiful nuance to it that is just stunning at times. Um, and I think that's an overall theme here. Uh, another one I know Paul saw, which I'll let him talk more on, is Fireball, uh, Visitors from Darker Worlds, I believe it's called, coming to Apple TV Plus shortly. Um, and where I think that film necessarily doesn't have the best balance between its two identities, that is a film that really works when it comes to showing the impact. It's all about meteorites. Um, and there's definitely a side explaining like the science of meteorites. But when it starts to focus on the impact they've had on different cultures and just humanity in general, I found that to be a really engaging documentary. Um, like I said, I believe Paul saw it, so I'll toss it over to him. I did. Um, for me, it was a little academic uh, and it felt a little like something that I would watch uh, in school back in high school, which was interesting. Uh, Werner's, uh, documentaries in general and especially with his ones with uh like clive oppenheimer um have been a little unfocused i don't know what do you think about it yeah i agree um like i said there is that deeper side which i really enjoyed but there is the academic side more than the other films i've mentioned that makes it feel a bit like a slog to get through at times 
Um, I also just didn't like the narration. Um, I know he's a very you know famous filmmaker, very acclaimed, very talented individual. I found the narration to be very distracting. So I was definitely more torn on this one than the other ones I mentioned. Um, but still, I think I lean positive more than negative. I think it's worth the watch. It's coming out on Apple TV Plus. So I mean, if you have the streaming service, it's going to be available. Yeah, there was a lot of stuff I learned that was interesting. Uh, I just don't know if I was specifically like as engaged as I wanted to be especially uh, during the second half where it felt like we'd gotten through the story and now we were just continuing. Yeah, so I actually got the press release for that one uh, a few days ago and because I missed it at the festival, but it does seem like something I'd check out. Um, but the thing is, that's kind of strange that you mentioned that the narration didn't work because I know that especially in, the, in Herzog's documentaries, one of kind of the highlights is just like his unique narration. So I was a little bit... Um, shocked to hear that that didn't really work for this film and no ordinary man as well um it's been getting a lot of buzz since tiff so that's also one that i'd say is definitely one that people need to kind of look out for especially in the oscar race um my favorite one of the festival in terms of documentaries i have to say was 76 days um i've caught it at multiple festivals and again really i know i've like i'll sound like a broken record on this one as well but it's just it's really such a good use of cinema verita um, and I really liked how it kind of just gave you that kind of ground zero feel of kind of like how these um, hospital, like everyone, all these doctors and nurses and everyone in the hospital were just working 24-7 to kind of make sure that the pandemic and in Wuhan at least could kind of kind of be subdued and like that the breakout could be controlled. And since you're put right there in the moment, you can kind of witness like all the stress and it feels very stressful as you go from room to room. And they do give some room for some characters to be explored. Like that's something I did like as well. Like there's like this like older man that kind of comes throughout the film in certain scenes and like it kind of becomes a recurring like bit. And it's kind of comedic as well. Like it has some comedic sides to it. But again, there's also these patients that you come, um, that you always come back to and you kind of see as their um, case deteriorates until some actually unfortunately die. So I'd say it's like heartbreaking. Uh, one thing is that it could have been a little bit more wide reaching. I feel like it stayed too focused on the hospital when it could have also focused a little bit on just Wuhan, China in general, and maybe a little bit more about the economy or just kind of like the social aspect of the original lockdown in Wuhan. But overall, I felt that it was a very strong documentary and it definitely is going to um, go far in the awards races. And I believe it's also been picked up by MTV Docs, which is kind of a new player in the game. Yeah, I also caught this film at AFI Fest. I actually talked about this one already a bit on the New York Film Festival podcast. So if you want my more in-depth thoughts, check it out there. I echo what Diego said. This is the most haunting film of 2020. Um, just, I mean, from the first scene alone, just your heart is broken. You are floored by the, just the raw, uncensored emotion and pain and suffering. Um, and especially in this time where so many people are so ready to return to normalcy and so ready just to, you know, let's start society again. COVID is just a fact of life. The stuff like this is needed to show that there are consequences and just how painful those consequences can be. Um, and just you know, if you did not have respect for healthcare workers, you will worship them after this film. Like the stuff they had to go through in this pandemic is unbelievable. 
Um, I'll also quickly shout out Hopper Wells, another film I saw. I actually saw this one in New York, but it's also playing here. Uh, it's one of my favorite documentaries of the year. If you're a cinephile, it's a sit-down dinner conversation between Orson Welles and Dennis Hopper. Um, very interesting times in their careers. Um, and it's one of the most engaging films I've seen all year long. Um, but another documentary new to the festival that I haven't talked about before is My Psychedelic Love Story, which is one of the most interestingly made uh, documentaries I've seen in a long time. Uh, it, where the content itself, I don't know if I fully connected with. It is a lot of like, oh, you know, it had trouble, I think, engaging in a modern, like relevant conversation that fully engaged me. But the editing is spectacular. Um, it is just absolutely super stylized um, and made the film watchable, even if the content itself, I didn't really care about, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, it totally does. Um, have you ever seen Tabloid? Uh, Earl Morris's. It's um, similar to this in that it's like a stranger than fiction kind of movie. But I think that one worked a little bit better because the story is so wild. I think this one tried to follow the same format. And uh, as you know, interesting as Harcourt Smith is, and as cool as she was, I don't think the story had as many turns, especially since their, uh, you know, their relationship fizzles. So it's like there was a little bit of a, and then you know, as couples do. So, um, but I really enjoyed it, and I like uh, Morris's movies in general. So, um, and I agree with you about the editing. It was fantastic, which all of his stuff has got that kind of, you know, unique flavor to it. And so that kind of sums up our experiences with the documentaries at AFI Fest. And now we are going to move into the international narrative films. They were, again, like as Carson was saying, in terms of the documentaries, this year is pretty much stacked in terms of international films. I know in the past that maybe maybe because um, virtual film festivals weren't so common, so all these international films couldn't get as much exposure like Bar Parasite or Roma or bigger names like that. But there's a lot of kind of like lower, um, lower key international films that in the past wouldn't have gotten much exposure. But because of virtual film festivals like AFI Fest, they have gotten just so much exposure. And it's kind of turned out into a very stacked slate for 2020 and 2021 as well. So I kind of just want to toss around the discussion here. And one that I saw was Apples, which I found um, to be very charming. Again, uh, this one was also at TIFF as well. I found it to be charming, as I said. So yeah, you can tell that Christos Niku here was um, inspired a lot by Yorgos Lanthimos. And I believe he was actually his assistant or he he's worked in tandem with him uh, before. But it's very derivative of his style. But And I found it to be quite enjoyable, especially the visuals. But one thing that it did miss was kind of like that Lanthimos bite that he's been so well known for. Like it felt kind of passive. Um, and you can tell that he's starting to explore some concepts, but he never kind of crosses the finish line in terms of um, creating a compelling exploration of the concepts that he explores, kind of about like memory loss. And it, it does deal with kind of like a pandemic that kind of um, swept through the entire world and left some people um, kind of like confused or lost in terms of like their previous lives. So like I said, it sounds like an interesting concept it is worth a watch. Um, he does start to explore that concept, but he, he did need a more cohesive exploration for this film to truly work. So I want to hear what other international films did you guys get to catch at AFI Fest? 
Uh, I watched um, Jumbo, which is one that I had been so excited about the entire year. And that was like, that was the one that just let me down. Uh, I felt like it was a little too quirky. Nomi Merlant is great, but nothing about that movie was working for me. It was so disappointing. I'm so disappointed to hear that. I'm hearing that from more and more of my friends and I'm so sad by that because I was really charmed by Jumbo. Um, It's definitely like more of a basic film. Like the overall premise sounds absolutely wild and it really is. It's a woman who falls in love and has like a full on sexual relationship with an amusement park ride, which sounds wild. The plot itself is actually rather, um, not to say paint by numbers, but the emotions you've seen before, it's a very like standard, thesis that the film finds um, about love and your place in the world and like accepting who you are and blah, blah, blah. Um, But I found it really genuinely charming. And the cinematography of this film is absolutely incredible. Um, At least for me, where the shots themselves might not be like stunning from a shot composition standpoint, the ability this film has, the absolute mastercraft within it of taking scenes and through filming, creating emotion in general, like desire. It's wild how they shoot this amusement park ride is, you know, cause you look at an amusement park ride and you're like, you know, obviously I think the mo- the average person is not like, oh, that's a very sexual experience, but how they shoot this like amusement park ride just has this energy to it. That is so like, you don't think on paper, like it could be achieved and it almost is achieved and it's absolutely wild. Um, I was really charmed by that film. So I'm really disappointed to hear so many people just not, not even like hate it, but just like ultimately feel flat about it. Cause I really like that movie. I, I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that it is a movie that feels like it should be wilder than it is. And I think um, I'm not sure how closely they follow the original story, uh, but I do feel like that was part of the problem was it was confined by the trueness of it all. Um, so once you kind of knew where the thing was going, it just, it continues that way. And, um, I did like a lot of the dream sequences and, um, I actually really enjoyed her relationship, uh, with her boss. I thought all of that was great. Um, it was mainly, I just could not, uh, get any attachment to the mother character or the, the boyfriend. It reminded me of Black Swan actually. And the... The, like held back and I was like I've seen this multiple times uh so nothing really like I, I wanted to see more exploration outside of okay she's a little weirdo well another film I found charming at the festival that you also saw um was my donkey my lover and I I believe the title is um plot wise again not best best actor right there um <laughs> really fantastic donkey best donkey of the year easily um really like not incredible this was just like this was at the end of the festival i was really kind of getting burnt out on films and very similar to when i watched like something like mamma mia this was just pure fun like the plot itself i didn't find that deep morally this film i think is very debatable um but it's just like pure fun and a pure expression of just like joy and love in this really like hollywood cinematic way even though it's a foreign language film um, that I just found really enjoyable. Did you find that one charming at least? Oh, I, I loved uh, I loved that movie. Um, it did remind me of like the old 90s rom-coms, uh, like a Meg Ryan vehicle or uh, 
yeah, the whole thing I enjoyed, especially Patrick. Um, I did find uh, same with you. Some of the the overall story, I guess, was a little questionable. Um, but how it works, it it feels like you know, it feels like in a '90s American movie. Um, that was the one. Like for, uh, I picked out different movies that I thought my parents should watch, and that was the one that I picked out for my mom. I was like, "You need to watch this. I think you'll love it." I also really enjoyed the fact that there are three donkeys, and I knew that ahead of time, and kept trying to figure out when they would switch. And you could almost tell sometimes there's little differences in their personalities. It's pretty funny. The other one that I watched that was a little it uh, was interesting um, was "I Carry You with Me," which is um, Heidi Ewing's. A uh, new film that was originally a documentary, and then she added a narrative to it halfway, and I could feel that. Um, this one did not work for me, but I can see why people would love it. It was definitely like, it's one of those movies that personally I'm just not going to enjoy, but I could definitely see the audience for it. Um, it's an immigrant love story. It's a gay romance, and um, I thought the actors were great. Um, but that late scene, uh, late section twist where it goes straight to a documentary was so bizarre to me. Uh, what'd you think, Carson? I really love that film. It's like, re- I really, really loved it. Um, if you have not already listened to the New York Film Festival podcast, highly recommend because we got like an in-depth, really, I think, spectacular conversation on the film there. Um, but overall, this is a film that, I mean, it grew on my heart. This is like very me. This is a very me movie. Um, I agree that third act is a little bit strange at times with some of the decisions, but overall it worked for me. Um, again, I think this has like some of the most underrated cinematography. No one's talking about the cinematography in this film, but I think it's stunning. Acting isn't phenomenal. Um, and this is a film that both, you know, it just really works. You know, it's both very tragic in one hand and very like heartbreaking. And in the other hand, it's uplifting and hopeful and it leaves you on this moment of hope. Um, and I think it's just really like, this is very me and I appreciate that. So, you know, hard necessarily to say like everyone will love this film, but for me, this one really, really worked. No, I can definitely agree. And that's that's one of the things I do think technically it was a uh, an accomplishment. Um, I'll be interested to see what else she does. Um, I do just feel it was a little... Um, it was a little slight at points um, to where it's, you know, a week or two out. I'm forgetting most of it <laughs> um, compared to other films, which I, you know, um, even something like Jumbo, where I remember everything about it. Cool. So then I'll just quickly transition because I saw quite a few here um, that no one else saw. So I'll just quickly kind of run through some of these. So the first one I'm going to talk about is a Swedish film, My Little Sister. This was actually their submission for the Oscars this year, um, this upcoming year, the 2021 Oscars. Um, Really charming film, really emotionally like devastating film also. Um, It's about a strained relationship between a brother and sister um, that really surprised me, I think, especially with international film submissions. And this is one of the best parts of AFI Film Festival in general is always they really put these foreign films on a platform and give accessibility to us in America who don't necessarily get accessibility to these films a lot of the times. Um, But a lot of times they're just kind of bland, I find. Um, This is a film that really, really, though, like went above and beyond and really genuinely surprised me. Um, Maybe that's just because of low expectations, but it overall worked for me. Rival is a film that like the third act is 
A plus. The rest of the movie is so slow to get there. Um, you start off with this really genuinely sweet relationship between a young boy and his mother. Uh, they're an immigrant family. They have to live with a strange man. Um, and eventually the mother gets sick and that starts a complete domino effect um, that leads to this really, really like not only tragic, but just like shocking series of events um, that is just phenomenal. But like I said, this is an hour and a half film. The first hour of this film is just this kid hanging out with his mother, which is fine. You know, you get this sense of love there that increases and enhances the emotions of the end, but it goes on for so long. And then once you actually get to where stuff happens, it is so short and so rushed. It feels like this is a film that needed to work on its time management. And really, if it would have changed the pacing around, would have changed its focus at points, could have been an A plus film. Um, ultimately though, it's more mixed just because it's so inaccessible for that first hour. Um, another film very similar to that is Should the Wind Drop? This has two different stories it is telling. It is a very small country um, and it's about this guy who comes to check out their airport. He's doing an audit. They've just built their first airport, very new. Um, and like not even open to the public. And before they can open the airport, they have to get it audited, make sure everything is checking out, everything is safe. Um, and it's about him coming in. He finds some issues with the airport. And there's this really touching, heartbreaking, like and very unique voice of the film about like a country's identity and how much this airport means to this country. Um, especially, you know, they're a country that have had a lot of violence in the past. Um, and this is a way of like justifying like this, you know, you have to have this airport because that means that people can't ignore us and they can't ignore our suffering. And this like identity crisis on a countrywide level is something that I've never seen before in film, but absolutely broke me. And it was really, really just shocking um, and stunning. But then you also have this story about this young kid who lives there um, and he sells water and you just keep going back and forth between these stories. And ultimately I found that this just distracted the film. It also just made it way longer than it needed to be. And this would have been a story just about this audit and about the pressures he faces as everyone around him, you know, really sells their heart to him. And that, you know, they say, this is what this means. And he has this enormous pressure where he has to do his job and he has to, you know, say what he finds but also that means that you're ultimately denying them what they need to like you know like it's incredibly nuanced and layered and unique and it's unlike anything else i've seen before but ultimately the film doesn't embrace that fully which i found frustrating um, but I think the best international feature I saw at the festival, um, which I know Diego also loved, was New Order. Uh, this is a film that's been riddled with controversy now, which, you know, we I'm, I'm not necessarily ready to speak on that. I definitely need to read some more about the film and its messages. Um, but right off the bat, you know, right off my first viewing of the film, loved it. Um, it's very much so like if you took the dinner scene out of Parasite, but instead of that being the emotional climax of the film, that's the very start of the film. And from there, it goes down this wild mix of Parasite, and there's also like some bit of Mother in there, and it's this just wild emotional roller coaster that is just continually layered with depth and nuances and things to break down. This is a film that if it really truly, you know, gets a good release and it's through neon, I believe. So I, you know, have decent amount of faith in them. 
Um, I think this is a film that everyone will want to talk about and everyone will want to break down. And I hope it finds that audience. I'm a little worried that um, similar to some other films from this year, that this is going to be a film that the conversation is dominated by these controversies and certain people's opinions on the film. Um, and that's going to just ju make everyone who hasn't seen the film turn against the film and there won't really be that dialogue. Um, but I really love this one, but I know Diego, you loved it. So I'll turn it over to you. Yeah. Yeah. So I saw this one at TIFF. So I was one of like kind of in the first wave of critics to see it. And I personally uh, really just really loved it. Same as Carson. It's like, um, as if you just took, well, it's, I'd say like Parasite is a bit more refined than this one. And this one's much more um, in your face while Parasite was more subtle. So I do know that there were a couple people who didn't like just how unsubtle this film was. But I feel that that also speaks to kind of how Latin American revolutions normally are, because it does touch on some of those themes. And I feel like it wouldn't have been good for this film to be as subtle as other films like Parasite or other, I know, like films that have been touted as international awards contenders. But yeah, from the first moment I saw this, I just fell in love with this film. It's already, it's one of my favorites of the year. Um, but I did see that it started getting some controversy. Um, just a lot of discussion about like whether or not it was like on the right side of the political spectrum. And the thing is, like I said, I feel like a lot of these people are um, like, yeah, they, their worries may be good. And like I said, um, I, cause I've seen um, a lot of kind of like American or like kind of white critics um, kind of like get a little bit into like it's shaky politics. And I originally found that like, okay, maybe that's cause they don't have such a, a good understanding of Latin American history, which is understandable. Um, at least they were like trying to make an effort um, to call the director out on some things, but I found that a little bit kind of disappointing that they didn't do their research. However, I've noticed some other Latino critics, um, specifically Mexican critics, um, indigenous Mexican critics like myself, um, kind of start critiquing the film without seeing it and kind of just off of um, what some of the other criticisms that were a little bit shallow said. Again, I feel like I'm going to have to give this one a rewatch and have hopefully host a discussion here with just a bunch of critics and just see what they thought. Because I know some people um, had some pretty strong opinions on it. And I did end up reading that the director did say a couple of things in some interviews that did seem kind of questionable. And that the use of green in the film kind of points to kind of a denouncement of the Green Party and of a lot of kind of like the more liberal politics of Mexico in recent years. So again, I'm a little bit, um, even though like at first, like I really loved it and I still love it for the plot. I'm, I still need to like kind of research even more, even further than what I already know, as Carson said, uh, to kind of determine whether or not uh, this film's heart is in the right place and whether or not they executed the message well. However, like Carson was saying, this is getting a neon release it could very much tap into that, especially kind of the mainstream, because the mainstream Parasite fan base, like, okay, most of like kind of the critical and the academic sides uh, fan bases that liked Parasite, liked it because of its subtlety, because of its subtext. And while they that may not be present in New Order, I feel that the mainstream fan base that liked Parasite because of its shocking twists and just kind of like the roller coaster, um, the emotional roller coaster that it was, I feel may uh, really like New Order as well, but it's all up to how Neon releases it, uh, whether or not the Mexican Academy chooses it um, to be the, their international film, which could kind of derail its campaign and its box office success. Okay, I feel like this is a film that definitely needs to be unpacked a little bit more and that for, both, for people who saw it, who both loved it like myself 
and who didn't like it whatsoever, um, as well as a lot of people out there did. I feel that this d- film does warrant multiple viewings to kind of unpack its politics, which I feel is going to be something that's going to be either very beneficial or detrimental to the film's future. I feel like this film really like got the unfair like shake of this whole situation because I feel like number one, this would have been a film that plays amazingly in theaters, very similar to Parasite. I would love to see this yeah. with the crowd. Uh, at home, I think it's still wildly engaging and captivating and shocking, but ultimately I think it should be played in theaters. I think that's like the best place for it. Also though, just this being played as a festival title, like this is like you said, a film that really requires multiple viewings to really break it down and understand it. And I always feel bad for films like this that play at festivals. Like the same thing could be said about The Lighthouse. Like I could not imagine watching that film at Cannes and having to wait till October to like watch it again. Cause it's so like, this is a film that I think will either, it, rewatches will either make or break the film for individuals. So I always feel bad for films like this that come out as festival releases. And currently I don't think it has a dated release. So who knows when we'll get a chance to see this again. Um, because I really think, like you said, the rewatches are going to make or break the film. Um, though even like besides what the film is trying to say, I think no one can take away the technical aspects of the film, the film editing, the cinematography, um, like, the boldness of the film. I don't think anyone will be able to take away those aspects of the film, uh, but I am interested to see where the conversation with this one goes. I want to kind of hear from like, just like a a buried array of critics who both loved and hated it and kind of just see what they think about the film. Cause like I said, on its first watch, um, after hearing some criticisms, I'm like, okay, yeah, that could be true. And then I watched it again at AFI Fest and there were some criticisms out there that like, okay, it's tailored too much against the poor that, even though like I was a little bit doubtful about it. And then I watched the film again and like, I immediately dismissed it because obviously this is a festival episode, so we're not going to spoil anything, but it is at least much more multifaceted than many of um, the original reviews would have you believe. So Diego, let me ask you this to close out our discussion on new order right now. It seems like a pretty heated race between that and I'm no longer here. Uh, I don't know if you've seen that film. It's on Netflix. I haven't seen it. I really want to check it out, Uh, but it seems like it's a race between the two for the submission for the Mexican um, for Mexico for the Academy Awards this year for best international feature right now. What do you have getting the nomination? Well, Carson, that is kind of a tricky question, and that is putting in a pretty difficult position because I'd say one of the most interesting kind of awards races for international this year has been kind of what's going on with the Mexicans. Because at the beginning of this festival season, it was a three horse was I'm no longer here, New Order, and I Carry You With Me. Now, I Carry You With Me did get some buzz, but it didn't get enough buzz, I'd say, to truly put it in contention. Um, it's still kind of in the shortlist, so it could be kind of like a sleeper contender. I doubt it, though. It it seems a little passive. It doesn't really kind of jump out and grab anyone's attention, especially Mexican Academy. So I would really put that one out of contention, as even in your question, you didn't even ask about I Carry You With Me. Now, and um, I'm no longer here, that is a very different question because, well, at the beginning of this season, when people first saw New Order, people were like, okay, regardless of if you love it or hate it, it's too shocking. It's a little bit too much than what the Mexican Academy would traditionally pick. However, it did get picked up by Neon and that immediately brought comparisons to Parasite and especially seeing how Neon was kind of like 
the biggest international distributor um or sorry international film distributor um last year in terms of the awards with uh, both portrait of a lady on fire which they actually had too much wealth there and they had to kind of outsource portrait of a lady on fire and focus on parasite however um i'm no longer here is i haven't seen it either um which i really do need to catch that one out check that one out as like i said i'm mexican this is something that like should really interest me and it really does interest me but i just i haven't gotten the chance to um but from what i've heard it's kind of that standard awards juggernaut it's everything um that kind of award films are looking for i believe it kind of sweeped the mexican academy awards um with 10 uh, i think 10 nominations and 10 wins so from a more traditional point of view um i'm no longer here um is definitely the front runner um and honestly it pains me to say that i think it's going to be i'm no longer here but i'd say depending on does i feel like if neon starts to push early um i know actually that um the film um new order released in mexico uh last week and it really hasn't gotten much buzz apart from like i know a couple of prominent critics did put some threads up um actually we had one of them on the podcast for tiff a few weeks ago um actually kind of denouncing the film and talking about this controversy so i feel like it's mexican release as he has explained has given it more bad press and good press so i feel like if neon starts doing a certain push i mean i haven't i've heard radio silence from neon on that point but i feel like if they start a push soon it could kind of um become the front runner and get selected and i really hope it does cuz that would show a lot of confidence from the mexican academy and i feel that with that neon push it could go all the way but at this point i'd have to say that i'm no longer here is the current front runner um as it's just, it's more traditional it's more awards friendly and honestly i feel like that one could also get far in the regular um academy award nominations honestly it's kind of a case of like um what france was dealing with last year with um both les misérables and portrait of a lady on fire being two very strong contenders um to that could very well go all the way i mean obviously um not considering the joker not that parasite was but without parasite both of them could either either of them could have easily won the the top um international prize and it's kind of just um an embarrassment of riches and that's what mexico has been going through this year in terms of films so anyways now we're going to move on to the english narrative features most likely our longest segment yet there were quite a few films here there were quite a few premieres um quite a few films that premiered at sundance and kind of subdued kind of was just waiting for the right time to go back into the whole festival circuit and they decided to do that with afi fest so i want to hear what you guys thought of all these kind of like the english narrative centerpieces that were presented at this festival so i'm so happy afi fest is finally giving me a platform to talk about wolf walkers on this podcast actually first saw this film at tiff and i liked it so much i rewatched it as part of afi fest It's the newest film from Cartoon Saloon. It's getting a distribution release on Apple TV Plus, which is very exciting considering their films normally are smaller and get very limited theatrical releases. So this one is releasing on a much larger platform, uh which is great because I think this could be genuinely like their best film. Um it's to the point where everyone is loving this film so much to where I think if there is a contender who could give Soul a run for its money, I think it is Wolf Walkers for best animated feature. Uh this film is stunning. from an animation standpoint 
I've never quite seen animation quite like this. Uh, the studio is always beautiful. Like their animation's always top tier, but this one in particular is so special which, with its uses of not just colors, but perspectives. The way the forest flows through the screen is unlike anything I've ever seen before. Um, and the story itself is so genuinely moving and charming. Um, it starts like it seems like it's going to be pretty simple. Um, this girl is from the village. Uh, she goes into the forest. She meets another girl who is a wolf walker. Uh, the wolf walkers can transform between wolves and humans. Um, she leads her pack. Her mother is missing. Um, but then it finds this really like nuanced and layered discussion about not just like the immigrant experience, um, but about finding one's place in life and about government. Um, and it's a really layered and like important film. Uh, this is one that just stunned me at TIFF. And I mean, I liked it so much that in the midst of AFI Film Festival, which granted it's like, you know, you can see about 30 films, let's say over the course of a week I did, um, I made time to rewatch this one. And I think it's just genuinely one of the best films of the year. Um, I also really liked Farewell Amore, another film that's been making the festival circuits that I finally got to see. Um, and this is a really inspired look at uh, a dysfunctional family. They've been separated. The father came to America many years ago um, when the daughter was just a child. She's now a teenager. Um, and they come back together. This family comes back together, the father, the mother, and the daughter. Um, and it tells the same story basically three times from each perspective. And you get to see each individual's truth and how they've dealt with being alone and how they've dealt with being separated. Um, each person has skeletons in their closet. Each person has found their own way to cope with being alone. Um, and I thought the structure of this film really worked wonders for it. Um, and just the very casual like reveals and very casual exploration of how these individuals came to adapt, I found to be really engaging and inspired. Uh, the other one I saw that no one else did was Pink Skies Ahead, a pretty fun like comedy, teen comedy about a girl um, who's dealing with an anxiety issue and has to come to terms with like her life. Her parents are moving out of their family home. She has to find her footing. A little bit more basic. I wouldn't say this one is anything spectacular, um, but I found it to be quite enjoyable. So uh, the one that you guys didn't see that I did was uh, Luxor. I watched it because I've been on a uh, Andrea Riseborough kick uh, recently because I hated her in um, Not the Ring. Uh, I hated her in The Grudge. And then throughout the year, she keeps appearing in movies that I like. And then I just realized that she's actually really great. And that was just a horrible movie. Um, so it's been really fun. I specifically watched it just for her. And she was great. Um, it's a very, very like basic movie. Um, an aid, uh, like a British aid worker goes on vacation in Egypt. Um, it's like a kind of middling romance. It was cute. I enjoyed myself, but uh, I don't think anyone will really remember it. It was interesting, though, to see they had full access to the city. Um, so uh, in terms of its cinematography and overall, just like the travel porn of it all was uh, pretty impressive. Uh, but I know we both watched uh, Uncle Frank, and I think we had different opinions on it. Uh, I'll let you go first. <laughs> I like the film. I found this to be charming. Uh, I found this to be a really like raw and honest 
look at the LGBT experience, especially with a family who is not necessarily accepting, um, or at least doesn't seem like they'll be accepting. Um, the process of coming out is different for everyone, obviously. Um, but as someone who, you know, has, you know, not to get very personal, but like had a pretty rough like coming out experience with their family. Like I would say I really appreciate that side of this film and just that honesty of not knowing how people will react to that. Because um, at the same time and, you know, unknowingly, right? They don't know this necessarily, but they will be saying, oh, I love you no matter what, blah, blah, blah. And at the same time, completely trash and be very anti this huge side of you. And there's that duality of your relationship with them that I think this film captures really well. Um, I'm happy the road trip apps aspect of the film didn't really go too far. Um, that wasn't necessarily the focus. It was much more on the inner trauma um, and inner drama between the family and this individual. Um, I thought there were some really heartbreaking moments here. Um, and again, I mean, this is one I wouldn't say like best of the year, but I certainly enjoyed the film and overall like very positive on it. I'm as far opposite as you could be. Um for a lot of the same reasons, um, surprisingly. Uh, I felt like Alan Ball is really great most of the time as this person who takes an issue and really explores it as much as possible. But I've seen this movie a thousand times and I felt like his self-insert character as he's Paul Bettany, even going so far as to have his own partner play the partner in the movie, it just... It felt like I was watching someone's therapy session, which is also uh, how I felt about last year's uh, the Shia LaBeouf movie. Honey Boy, another out. Honey Boy, another film I loved. See, I couldn't stand it. I cannot. I have no interest in watching your therapy um, because, the, especially uh, as you were uh, alluding to, uh, the ending is so neat, and uh, <laughs> when it. There was one point in it where they have a fake out um, for a death scene. And I was so annoyed with it that I uh, I pretty much just like gave up on the film after that. I think it was honestly one of my least favorite films of the year, like bar none. Um, and I think it's just because I know Alan Ball can do better. And he's, you know, been recently on a kick of I'll just do easy things, um, which has been really disappointing for me. Uh, you know, I'll defend true blood till the day I die, no matter how crazy it got. But uh, <laughs> this one just did nothing. But one I liked a little bit more uh, was Wander Darkly. Uh, it's the first time in a while I've gotten to see Sienna Miller act well. Um, I think the movie is a little too basic Twilight Zone. Basically, it's the story of a woman who uh, decides she's going to break up with her husband, gets in a car accident, and they go through their life um, in a kind of uh, patchworky way, similar to um, Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. And it's mainly just, you know, Diego, Luna, and uh, Sienna Miller just acting at each other. Um, those aspects I really enjoyed. The story itself, I think, was a little flimsy. Another fake out I just was not interested in. Um, the reliance on twists recently uh, for these kind of movies is really starting to frustrate me because you don't always, it feels like old, early 2000s horror instead of like, you know, doing something 
following the same narrative. Um, how what do you think about it? I cannot agree with you more on Wonder Darkly. I wanted, I really like wanted to like this film much more than I did. I was very annoyed by this film, if I'm being just completely honest. I don't think it's a train wreck or anything. Like I do think the acting is there and like at least the emotions and like ideas on paper I can enjoy. But this is a film that tries to keep the audience in this like suspense of like, what is really happening? What is true? What is fake? Um, and it's just like, I had no interest in this at all. Be bold make a statement, put these characters in this really interesting space and just fully commit to it. This back and forth of not really committing to anything and, oh, you know, are they dead? Are they, you know, I don't care. Like, I just did not care. I was so annoyed by this film. It just, it had this really interesting, like, idea, but it just never could commit to fully exploring it in a way that I found engaging. So I really agree. Like, these films try, because they feel like they need to elevate the material for some reason, especially with a film like this that has a really interesting premise, they feel the need to elevate the material and stand out by having these big twists and having, oh, especially in horror, it's really annoying me in horror how now they have to be like, oh, instead of just having a monster or having a ghost or whatever, like you have to have all these like, oh, you hear, you know, you see a shadow moving and is it real? Is it fake? You know, and they just don't go anywhere with it create an interesting space and play in it, be bold and embrace what you are. It works sometimes, these fake outs and these questions and not having the audience know exactly what is going on. But now it's just getting to the point where it feels dull and I just don't care. Um, very tiny film I saw at Nightstream Film Festival, Anything for Jackson. I really appreciate that movie so much because it's a film where this old couple is trying to do this demonic ceremony to have a child be born. Um, and it just fully commits to its space. It fully commits to the fact that, yep, they're doing this um, ritual. Yes, there's demons, like it's just a thing. And it's so refreshing, I found, to see a film that just commits to what it's trying to be. Grand to the film, you know, admittedly is trying to be something very different, but it's back and forth and just unwillingness to fully just play in its space. I just found to really be an overall aspect of the film that hurt itself. I, I completely agree. And it's interesting how similar um, it felt in its overall world um, to actually Nine Days, which was also at the festival. But unlike... Uh, Wander Darkly, Nine Days, I think was, it's still currently my favorite movie of the year. Uh, it's just so inventive. And uh, Edson Oda just really shocked me. I was expecting to um, mildly like it. And instead I spent the entire <laughs> time in between just like being in awe and also just, you know, occasionally sobbing, depending on the, the moment. Uh, what'd you guys think? Yeah, again, I could not agree with you more here. Nine Days, I was really worried about because it seems like a film that, like, just based on premise alone and kind of the early word, it seemed like it could be one of those films that feels extremely pretentious about its story and its emotions. Um, but again, this is one that just, like, creates an interesting space, plays in it, and because of that, you can find a really interesting look at life. I didn't find this film to be pretentious, possibly largely because the acting, I think the acting in this film is phenomenal. Um, I really love the setup and I really love the world. I found this to be just like a very raw and authentic film. It is currently my favorite film of 2021, which is where I'm counting this. So it's currently my number one there. Um, but yeah, I really love this film. Yeah, this was actually the first film I saw at AFI Fest. And I have to say that I definitely agree with both of you guys. And I just, I really, really love this film. 
if you've listened uh, to this podcast before, you'll know that one thing that I really appreciate and that I really look for in a film is just sheer ambition. And this is a film that just kind of encapsulates everything that I look for in that term, in terms of ambition in a film. While I feel that, yes, it could have been explored a bit better and it wasn't as wowing as I was hoping it would be. Like I, I thought it would be something more like closer to Arrival or the Tree of Life in terms of how it explores kind of like um, just life in general. And it doesn't quite reach those heights. But the one thing that I do commend is that it tries to reach those heights. And in trying to do that, it still is able to be much better than a good majority of the films that have released this year. Um, the cinematography as well, I just, I found it to be, it was shot very beautifully. There's, um, it's like, like I said, not to spoil it so much, but there's scenes that happen inside a house with like kind of just some projection based um, backgrounds, as well as just like these like out like salt flats, I believe like there's like these beautiful landscapes. And um, just the way in which the shot is, it's just stunning. And I feel like, he made a good use. You can tell that like it wasn't like the biggest budget film ever. But like I said, there were these scenes with like these projected backgrounds that just looked beautiful. And even though you could tell that they were projected, that was the point. And that added just this um, sort of like kind of a homemade feel to the film, especially with the score as well. I found the score was touching. Um, I believe, yeah, I think it's still going into contention for the 2020 or the 2021 Academy Awards. And I feel like this could this film could get in with score. Um, I just, I just, the score, that score is something that I'd say is closer to kind of Johan Johansson's work on Arrival as well, where it's very melancholic, um, very emotional, very touching, and it just heightens the film so much more, as well as all the performances, basically. I found, I found a little bit of it, um, the performances kind of were what made it feel not so pretentious, because I feel like if maybe you got, um, these like storied thespians, um, maybe it would add a little bit more of that pretentious, voice to the film as Carson was saying but I felt that they got these like actors that are uh, known for kind of playing more like realistic characters um well not not Bill Skarsgård with it of course but I mean just in general like that they that they, when they're just playing like they're just known for like more realistic portrayals in general and they may not be the flashiest or showiest actors but they can deliver good solid performances and that is what they do here and it gives a sense of humanity to the film when it could otherwise feel pretentious. So overall, I really enjoyed this film. I would say this is definitely one of my favorite films of the festival. And I'm so glad that it's getting the raves it's getting. I don't know about awards potential, but it will get an audience for sure. And another one that um, played at TIFF actually premiered at TIFF and has kind of been making the festival rounds to much praise. And it does have a, a better chance of having an awards push is that of one night in Miami. So I want to hear what you guys thought of that film as well. So I went and saw it at the drive-in. Uh, is that how you saw it, Diego or uh, one night in Miami? Um, no, I actually saw this one at the virtual press screening at Toronto international film festival oh, okay. back in early September. Um, yeah. So uh, it was a drive-in screening, which did color my viewing a little bit. This is a, very you know standard uh play adaptation and i think watching it in a car was a little hellish um because it's so dry i did enjoy it i loved the performances but it was it was pretty hard uh, especially i arrived a little late so i was far in the back um which has nothing to do with the film itself but was uh, an interesting aspect of seeing that movie um 
which I think is something that once we get into award season, people will start having to deal with because the only press screenings we have are these drive-ins. So that'll be interesting. But yeah, across the board, I think it was amazing performances. Really great first film for Regina King, um, who is just doing fantastic right now. I, I think it feels a little Oscar-y, if you know what I mean. There's nothing that I think will particularly stand the test of time or whatever, but I enjoyed it. What do you guys think? You know, this was a film I was actually really pleasantly surprised with. And not that I expected to not like the film. I think Regina King, obviously as an actor, is an incredible talent. Uh, but making, uh, you know, one of her early directorial outings, um, I really loved this film. I thought this had a sense of poetry to it. You can definitely get the sense uh, that it was based on a play very similar to The Father, which I know we'll talk about eventually. Um, but it has that kind of similar act of like how it uses its space, how it uses its dialogue, its flow of dialogue. Um, but I found this one to be ultimately really captivating. Uh, the entire film, even past the screenplay, the cinematography carries a sense of poetry to it um, in a way that almost reminds me a bit of if Beale Street could talk, if that makes sense, where this entire film is just, it feels like a pure artistic expression um, that was really well crafted. I think it balances its characters really well. This is a film with a lot of characters, not just a lot of characters, but a lot of iconic characters that you have to do a good service to. Um, I thought it overall handled that very well. Um, yeah, this was just a film that I, I really didn't expect much from. Um, I ended up really liking, and I think, you know, it is getting an Amazon Prime release in early January after a very limited theatrical release. I think this one could find an audience. I think this one's like, could become like a sleeper, like hit this award season, depending on how it plays with its more, with its dialogue and stuff. Cause it, if you don't like plays, you're not gonna like this film. It just depends how you like this flow of dialogue. Yeah, so same here. I, I was expecting to like it a little bit less than I actually ended up liking it. Um, at first though, it did feel like it was kind of trapped in that play structure and Regina King, I believe this is her first time directing a feature. I believe she's directed a TV movie before, but this is her first time directing a full feature. And you can kind of tell at the beginning um, where it's very much trapped in the play that it originally was, because I believe Kemp Powers adapted this from his own play and he functions as a screenwriter here as well. You can very much see here that it's trapped in that older structure, but I'd say around the midpoint, um, it kind of starts to transcend its limitations there's like more locations, uh, the character dynamics become more developed. And once it really becomes all about the characters, that's where even though that's something that you'd see in a play, it kind of transcends um, kind of the, the trappings of a play. And it, you can kind of see how it's a fully fleshed out feature film. I feel that partially what helps is uh, the performances again, uh, especially Kingsley Benadir and uh, Leslie Odom Jr. are just magnificent in this film. I know, um, Leslie Odom Jr. is getting a little bit of traction for supporting actor here as well. And especially towards the end, uh, it's kind of the conclusion, because like I said, most of this film takes place in a hotel room or in just like kind of like the compass of the hotel, except for the very beginning and the very end. And at the very end, once they move on to the outside world and you can see how each of these characters has changed through their conversations, um, that also really that book end of the film um, really brought it up a notch for me and there's like I believe at, at the end you see Leslie Odom Jr. sing as Sam Cooke as one in one of his most famous songs 
as kind of this montage plays out. And that is something that just makes it really enjoyable for me. I do feel that Regina King, um, again, it's her first feature film and you can see that she's very much just kind of sticking to the script. Um, she's not really trying to take any risks. I'm not really trying to push any boundaries, which is fine. Um, for a first directorial debut, I would like to see her kind of get a little bit more risky um, and push more boundaries in the future. But for a first feature film, that's totally fine. And like Carson, I do believe that especially um, as some of the awards frontrunners, because I know it's very, well, this year, I'm not sure because uh, of all the uncertainty, but in most years, those awards frontrunners around this time um, normally end up falling back either to controversy or just uh, people are tired of raving about them and other films move forward like for instance green book in 2018 um even though this is a much better film than um green book a much more topical film than green book i could see this one being more of a sleeper hit as well um obviously like i said i don't know if the front runners are going to stop being front runners uh, specifically with these circumstances but if that trend does continue i could very well see like um something like one night in miami just being very inoffensive but still topical kind of just slowly rise to the top and take the top prize i mean remember i mean okay to respond to a couple things number one this is regina king sophomore feature she did have one feature beforehand but kind of bat with her but that, was that a TV? Wife. Wasn't that a TV? Wasn't I believe that was still a, a feature. It's still a feature film. True, but um, I mean, like, not with that budget. I don't believe. Sure, uh, sure. I mean, or, yeah, sure. I'll give you that. Um, but to kind of bat for her on why she like didn't take more risks. This is an incredibly hard like feature to have control over as any like even for an experienced director with this amount of characters and adapting from a play and its restrictions on setting for the large majority of the film it does you know go places but you know for the large majority of the film there's a large restriction on the different settings and you really have to have a certain talent to kind of create this in a captivating sense so i think it's better that she didn't bite off more than she could chew because I think it already was an immense effort to get where she, like this product is now um and then also as far as like its award chances um I'm sure we'll talk about awards more specifically on some podcasts upcoming soon but you mentioned like this stage in the award season I think everyone needs to remember like actually when you look at time-wise in a normal award season right now it's like we're in like August I think it is we're still very early on I think one of the best things this film has that Nomadland doesn't have that the father currently doesn't have that most films don't have is it has a later release number one coming out like I said Christmas Day in some theaters wide release on Amazon Prime in January also though it has that home VOD experience uh, people are going to get a chance to see this film uh, the Father right now, I believe, is just cinematic, just theatrical. Same with Nomadland. Those are films that, as of right now, of course, things will probably change, are sticking to a theatrical release. Um, I think this is going to be very like beneficial for the film that it can say it has its theatrical release. It can show the Academy, who have proven that, at least for Best Picture, they're very stuck up about... Um, VOD streaming services. It went to theaters, but then it also has this wide release on uh, Amazon Prime that everyone can see. So I think this is a film that has a very nice uh, line, like uh, path lined up for itself. Though the real question, I guess, is Amazon and how Amazon does. Amazon historically has not been super successful. So, I mean, I guess that's the biggest question mark in my mind. Well, yeah, sorry. In terms of the whole Regina King taking risks, that is what I was referring to. Like, I feel that for the material that it was, she didn't take any risks, um, but the risks, like I said, that's fine. 
it's um for what the material warranted um it wasn't begging her to take risks i'm just saying that in the future i would like her i would like to see her take on some material that does warrant some risks being taken so that then she can kind of fully explore her potential as a director i do feel though that at least I, like i said the first half um it's well it's a very um screenplay carried film like it's all about the script as like when the script is weak or when the script is a little more stagnant, that's when you can tell the the film suffers. And then when it's more about the characters, you can tell that's when the film really succeeds. And so, like I said, I don't feel like it's her fault, but that first half was a little bit unengaging or at least compared to the rest of the film. And in terms of the award chances, exactly. I feel that a lot of these films, including like Mank and things like that, right now they're getting all that buzz, um, but they're coming out early December. Um, actually, I believe Mank, and Know My Land come out the same day. And then The Father comes out like a week or two afterwards. So I really feel like those three, I think they're going to get nominated, but I feel like they're going to get canceled out. And like I said, this could definitely be a sleeper hit. Um, we're going to be discussing this in length in some upcoming podcast episodes, as Carson said. But I, I would definitely keep an eye out for this one. I would put it as a lock for at least a nomination. And and yeah, Paul, any thoughts on those two points? Yeah, I mean, I definitely think it'll be nominated. Um, I think it's very Academy friendly. I also think we need to remember that uh, this this new schedule, it will be interesting because a lot of these have to be well-liked basically a year after they come out. So it'll be interesting to see if they, you know, if One Night in Miami or any of these other ones, uh, what even their rewatchability is. I think is going to be a lot more important than it ever has been. Um, this is a problem with the Emmys that now the Oscars will be dealing with is that something that's exciting for five minutes now, or, you know, was enough, you have to remember it. And then when voting comes up, it's, so that'll be really, um, you know, when voting comes up, uh, you have to still be as interested in it as day one which I think is why I think it'll be a weird year. I think some strange films will uh, end up rising to the top that we wouldn't expect otherwise. Which we've seen that issue already from Netflix. I think that's like, not to completely sidestep, but at least last year's an AFI Fest, I know they've been very Netflix heavy on releases. And this year, Netflix is pretty much just staying out of the festivals other than the stuff they pick up from the festivals. Um, because you look at Marriage Story and The Irishman, those played literally like, especially Marriage Story played every year. I know last year at AFI Fest, when the banker had to pull out from Apple, uh, they threw Marriage Story in there as like a special bonus screening for I think the final night. Um, that played everywhere and it just, the conversation happened and then it moved on from Marriage Story and where it got nominated ultimately, you know, failed to win Best Picture. Same thing with The Irishman, which failed to win even one award. So I definitely agree with you there. Um, and I think Netflix has learned. We'll see. Maybe Amazon learns if they just continue to fail, but we'll see. Um, also, I just want to quickly shout out, what a year for Kent Powers. Speaking of films that come out on Christmas, his other writing credit is for Soul, Pixar Soul. I did not know that until I looked it up now. Um, he's one of the co-writers on that film. So, you know, he's having a good year. Christmas is going to be a good day for him with two of his films releasing. And this gives me a little bit more hope for Soul. I'm in that weird minority where I'm not necessarily really looking forward to Soul. Um, but I, I enjoyed the screenplay here, so I'm hopeful for the screenplay there. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I feel like Kemp Powers is having a stellar year. I believe he's also, um, I think there's also, a, 
a fil- another film I'm going to need to look it up that he's also attached to. And I believe he's also actually producing both um, Soul and One Night in Miami, I believe. Um, he's, al- I mean, he's also the co- He's uh, Kemp is also the co-director of Soul. Oh, okay. Yeah, that's it. So I feel like, honestly, depending how that plays out, that could be really good for him this year. Um, but just to move um, out of the awards conversation and more into like you guys were saying, um, the shelf life of these films. One of these like tricky situations, um, especially with the whole pandemic, can be seen in The Sound of Metal. Now, this film actually premiered at the Toronto International Film Festival one year ago. So this is in 2019. And I believe Amazon picked it up right away. Everyone was like, okay, this is going to be an awards contender, immediate awards contender. And I don't know what happened, but they ended up delaying it um, to its release to June. And then obviously June came and went. Um, We didn't hear anything about it. Um, It kind of just faded away for obvious reasons. I think they didn't want to. um, I think actually now that I'm thinking, they saw that it could actually have some big awards chances. So they wanted to save it more towards the end of the year. And now it's kind of having, I think it had its fall festival premiere now at like Hamptons International Film Festival and a couple of others. And now it's playing here at AFI Fest. And I feel that, again, this film festival um, really rejuvenated the chances of that film. Um, I know it's getting some, especially with the best sound, of course, um, it could really go far in that. But I just wanted to discuss that film a little bit more. Um, It's about this drummer um, who all he's done his entire life and his whole passion has been drumming. But then he starts um, losing his hearing and now he's not sure like now he has to come to terms with the fact that um he's losing his hearing and that his favorite thing to do he may not be able to do it anymore so yeah he ends up going to live in, um with a group of hearing impaired people and kind of just like learns um how they function in their daily life and takes on these new skills and then like i said um obviously no spoilers but he learns quite a few things about himself that he didn't know and he comes out changed and it's kind of just about like kind of accepting that big change in his life and seeing what to make of it. And again, Riz Ahmed's performance is brilliant. So I believe it's actually co-written and executive produced by the director of Blue Valentine and The Place Beyond the Pines. Um, his name is Derek Sianfrance, I believe is how you pronounce his last name. And you can kind of, you can definitely tell those influences are present throughout the film. But again, I'd say the best aspect of it is its sound design. As you've heard many people say before, sound is one of those stealth things that can really make or break a film. And it truly takes um, Sound of Metal to another level, especially like it's a little bit, like it's present there in the first two acts, but um, it's really just an exploration. I think the director said it himself that it's kind of just like an exploration of sound in three acts. Of course, the first act is him um, kind of just like with the sound diminishing second act is kind of just like it's like just um sound going like up and down just like kind of absent for most of the film um there's actually long stretches of this film that are actually just completely silent and then the third act um this is not going to go into spoilers but the third act just how it plays with sound um it just brings an array of different techniques there's like maybe um five different like different uh sound compositions in terms of like how the sound is mixed in this like maybe like um 10 or like 10 to 20 minutes and it's just um it's so disorienting and atmospheric and just it really sucks you in and especially um at the end is this is not gonna spoil anything but at the end there are bouts of silence just complete deafening silence um and then contrasted with just like a bunch of um static 
and just kind of that just juxtaposition really brings the film to another level. And like I said before, I think it really um, serves as a great calling card for a best sound contender. Yeah, I definitely agree with you. This film was interesting to me because I loved the first act. And then I think it really falls off uh, in the second and third acts. I just, I, it's another one of those films that once you know, once you hit the, the point where he goes back to the, um, the rehab center, um, it just, it slammed on the brakes for me story-wise uh i also thought uh some of the uh kind of debates that it wades into um it didn't fully take a side in certain spots or while like bringing up questions um so that was a little frustrating for me it is a world that i'm not fully aware of um so that was interesting and then obviously the sound and uh acting were great um, but yeah, it just kind of left me a lot colder than I was expecting. Uh, what'd you think, Carson? I'm definitely more in the middle between like both of you guys. I agree the third act and specifically the later half of the film is less engaging substance wise. I think overall, this is another film where like substance wise, you pretty much know where it's going from very early on. Substance wise, there's nothing really revolutionary in this film, but the style, like Diego said, I found so unique and so ultimately just engaging and stunning that even in that third act, when it starts to become a little bit less interesting, I still found myself really engaged with the film. Um, talking about people with great years, Riz Ahmed, holy shit. I mean, coming off of this and Mogul Mowgli, which is a film I just saw that hopefully is going to be getting a bigger release. Um, I think a lot of people appreciated him coming out of like Rogue One, for example. I think he's having like an incredibly, like if he does not blow up after this year, Hollywood is doing something wrong because he's proven himself to be such a like powerful talent. Um, I think he's stunning in this film. Him and the sound design are definitely the standouts for the film. Um, but yeah, ultimately, like I said, this is a film like The Substance. You know what you're getting yourself into. It doesn't do a lot to defy your expectations. But ultimately, the style is so strong that I don't think it really needed to to fully work. This is definitely one film where, again, I wouldn't say like best of the year. I think it's incredibly solid and definitely worth checking out, especially as this is another film getting an Amazon Prime release. Everyone's going to get the chance to see this. I don't think it's fully accessible. I think a lot of people will be turned off by the style, um, but I know I at least really appreciated it. And best of all, it felt unique, you know, especially when you see so many movies. I've seen nearly 300 new releases this year alone. Um, when a film can feel unique, you know, that says something. And this film felt completely unique. When I look back at 2020 and I look back at the list of films I saw, this is one that I'm going to see on that list and say, oh, that felt unique. That was interesting. So, you know, that's, I think, a huge positive for this film. Yeah, like I said, oh, I forgot to mention this earlier, but I know both of you guys mentioned this. The, the main criticism I would have of the film is that it does um, drag and kind of grinds to a halt um in the second act especially like when it, he goes kind of to that um to that uh, special home so but like i said before um honestly that that third act with its use of sound design and its atmosphere kind of really made me forget about those faults and like i said before and like you said um carson i don't feel like it's it's 
the anywhere near the best of the year, but it's still a very solid and unique film. I feel 2020, one of its strengths in terms of film um, has been just how many unique films are able to get to the next level of exposure because of how everything has gone virtual. Like I know like Last and First Men, uh, She Dies Tomorrow, this, um, Kill It and Leave This Town. Like these are just, these are all just so many, ex- like not specifically experimental, but like definitely more um, ambitious and boundary pushing films have gone just on another platform of exposure simply because everything has gone virtual. So just in general, I think it is a testament uh, to the boundary pushing uh, films that have been seen in 2020. And another one that I would say um, that many people actually, including myself, thought that originally it was going to be much more kind of Oscar Beatty Academy friendly. And while it still is Academy friendly, it does push quite a few boundaries and introduce a few new um, concepts told in new ways is the father. So I do want to hear what you guys um, thought, because I believe we all attended the special presentation of The Father, and I know that's going to be a film that's probably going to be discussed for a while in the coming weeks and up to awards season. I love this film. I mean, this was, I believe, my favorite film from the festival. Um, this one genuinely stunned me. Whenever you hear a lot of hype, you know, it's always a little bit concerning because a lot of times the films with the most hype, you're kind of, oh, you had over expectations for, you expected too much from. This is a film that I knew nothing about going in. And other than the fact that I knew Anthony Hopkins was supposed to be giving an incredible performance and my God, is he? This is genuinely, I think, one of the best performances he's ever given. The screenplay is so haunting um, and go into this one blind. I really encourage people to not watch the trailer. I watched the trailer afterwards and it gives away like a big reveal and that's not necessarily revealed, but this is a guy suffering from memory loss and how the film decides to display that is done in a very like shocking way if you don't know what's coming. Um, and just like the you know character himself, this film puts the contradicting, I'm contradicting myself to what I said earlier. Um, this is a film that keeps the audience guessing on what's real, what's not, what is happening. Um, but it does it in such an effective manner that thematically makes sense. The difference between this and something like Wander Darkly is Wander Darkly's thesis doesn't require that. This is a film which thesis thrives in the audience and the character not knowing what is happening and second guessing themselves at every point. Olivia Coleman is fantastic in this film, definitely in the supporting role. I know some people are wondering if she's going lead. If she goes lead, it's 100% category fraud. This is definitely a supporting role. Um, and Anthony Hopkins is undeniably the lead. Um, possibly best performance of the year. Like no matter what category, I think this might be the best performance of the year. A stunningly haunting film. Like this one blew me away. I think memory loss is a lot of people's like biggest fear. I know it's one of my biggest fears. Um, and this film exposes that and plays with that in a really well-crafted, um, also terrifying way though. This is almost like one of the best horror films of the year, even if it's not actually a horror film. This one like genuinely, I mean, I, I'm just going in circles at this point, so I'll pass it off to you guys, but I love this one. Um, so yeah, I would also say that, like I said, sorry, like you, I really, really loved this film. Now, coming into it, I was a little bit skeptical because even in Sundance, even though the reactions were stellar, um, just, I don't know what it was, but it just gave me that like awards bait vibe. I don't know if it was because it just the marketing or not necessarily the marketing, but like the posters and just a general um, reactions kind of like um, 
felt like something like the wife kind of similar to death just like oh it's just glenn close um and nothing more deserves it even the poster on i believe right now on letterbox the main poster um looks like something you'd slap on an early 2000s award campaign that would get you actor nominations and nothing else so coming into it um even though i had heard some great reactions i was still like is this one of those films that is just like getting overhyped and it's award spate or is it something that's truly special from the first frame of the film? Like I could tell that those doubts uh, didn't exist anymore because it was, it's just so like, um, it's one of those films that, like I say, I call it transcendent. Um, like Carson, you were saying um, some films just like to be ambiguous or like question things or keep everything kind of like under wraps just to kind of be known as like edgy or stylistic. And there's certainly been a fair share of those like Wonder Darkly, but there's been quite a few others that have just kind of gone for that. And you can kind of tell that that's what they're going for and it just doesn't work. But for what this film is trying to achieve, it's the perfect way to tell the story. Um, just the way it's told, I would say it's like kind of as if you were to put, I'm thinking of ending things into an awards vehicle. Cause like it has those like um for like um I'm sure like the art house crowd may be like oh like like me like okay it it seems a little bit award spady um just from all the all the marketing but once you put um hopefully that comparison kind of like compels those skeptical listeners um to go watch it because it is one of those films that it is an awards powerhouse but it still explores these concepts in ways that. I haven't seen explored at this level of um, kind of just film. Um, this is again, one thing that, and it's kind of made me a little bit more um, uh, disapproving of One Night in Miami, don't get me wrong. Like I said before, that's a great film, but this is actually also an adaption of a play and it's actually directed and written by Florian Zeller who wrote the play and I believe it directed the play as well. And now this is a film that again, it's very confined. It, I believe it only has, um, two locations I'm, I'm trying not to like kind of get into too much plot details because that is that can be something big but it, it really only has like I think two three locations um and but even though in one in Miami you could really feel that it was very confined and it was all about the performances while the performances here are very strong um there's just so much uncertainty going on that it just the film is engaging and it keeps you on your toes I gotta be honest, sometimes I had to rewind because it's because like I'd catch some things and I'm like, wait, they went there. And I'd have to rewind and be like, oh wow, yeah, they really went there. Um, and it's just it's this is a film that takes a lot of risks, a lot of risks that pay off, but still keeps it um conventional enough that I feel that this could become an awards powerhouse. And I am very excited to see where this goes. I believe Sony Picture Classics is releasing it on December 18th. Um and like I said, I would predict a lot of nominations across the board for this one. So, Paul, I know you also were able to catch this one. And what did you think about this one? I mean, uh, yeah, Sony Pictures uh, released my two favorite movies from this fest, uh, this in nine days. Um, this one, I went in a little different than you guys. I 100% knew I was going to like it. There was no question in my mind um, just from the the trailer, which I, I do agree spoils far too much um to you know the the cast who both of them i love um i also think that uh because coleman's performance is so good that it's overshadowing uh the fact that olivia williams is also fantastic and um she really gives a performance in certain points that are like okay well uh, coleman is ostensibly the the lead 
leading of this character, but uh, Williams is the one who has to deal with more of the emotional burden at points. Um, so that was really interesting to me. Um, yeah, overall, it's it's one of my favorites. Talking about what you guys have been uh, discussing, it is funny to me that <laughs> trying to explain the plot of this movie is near impossible because they're almost because it's so mixed up there is no plot to really describe it's just a man's mind and um <laughs> i've had friends ask me like okay well what's the movie about i'm like well <laughs> it but maybe it's this and it's it's been really funny um yeah i think i as i was saying uh before we started recording i do think this is the one that will probably become the front runner when everyone finally sees it. Um, it just feels so different and so unusual. Um, and Coleman and uh, Hopkins being so well-liked, I think will push it into being a, a real powerhouse contender. I'm curious, Paul, did you like, I'm thinking of ending things? Oh no, I hated that. <laughs> okay, I'm, well, so how do you meet someone else who does like that film? I think this makes I'm Thinking of Anything look like an embarrassment, if I'm being completely honest. Like, watching this I film, 100% agree. It was shocking to me that people saw this as Sundance, saw I'm Thinking of Anything, and still said, wow, what a film. I think this film does everything I'm Thinking of Anything wants to do, not just in, like, an incredibly, like, more powerful matter, but also just in such a less pretentious matter. Like I thought I'm thinking of ending things. My original thought is I'm mixed. I think it's overall fine, but I don't think it's anything spectacular. After watching this film, I genuinely don't know if I could go back and watch I'm thinking of ending things again. I think this makes it look not, you know, not to piss off film Twitter. This is a hot take, I think in general. Um, I think this makes I'm thinking of ending things looks almost like a joke. I mean, I have so many problems with, I think, I'm thinking of ending things as a rule um, that, but I did, uh, that was one of the things that I was watching and noticed and I was like, oh, this is significantly better version of the same basic idea. Um, what were you gonna say, Diego? No, yeah, I was just gonna say that um, I, like I said, I, I really liked it. But anyways, we had a, a very, very long discussion. I know Carson with Carson and Jack, um, and I, and I had to go to bat for that film. And I understand why people don't like it. Um, but yeah, I feel that, and this may be why, but I feel like, like I said, this is very much like the themes that I'm thinking of anything was trying to explore, but packaged in a much more kind of like awards friendly and a much more um, kind of kind of just like um, traditionally impactful way. Um, so I do feel that it is, like I said, I personally like I think of anything's more, but for those of you who did not like it, I definitely see how, while it plays with the same themes, it doesn't in a more traditional and impactful way. So I know how many will, I like it much more. It's strange because this film, like in comparison is much more conventional, though it's also like completely unconventional at the same time. It's a really weird space that this film like lives in, in this conversation. And I definitely could see, like, I think there's definitely two rules of thought. And I think we see it a lot, Diego, and that's one, like, I genuinely love having you on the podcast with films like this, because I think it pushes <laughs> me, because I think you have this perspective where you like these really uh, more abstract ideas and these more abstract exactly, expressions yeah. of these themes. And I personally find that very pretentious. So I like these more grounded and more conventional grant. Again, this is not a conventional film, I would say. So I think mm -hmm. like this duality in 2020, if I'm thinking of anything's in the father, 
I completely, not that I understand as in like, I agree, but I understand if someone likes, I'm thinking of ending things more. It's just like, it takes this very similar idea and just shows two drastically different mindsets of how to say it. And I think like everything out of 2020, all the conversations we could have, the duality of these two films is one that really interests me and in seeing their reactions. So I think that's definitely something that stood out to me. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I feel like um, what I'm thinking of ending things was to film Twitter is what the father will be to awards voters, hopefully, fingers crossed. Um, I'd be really excited to see this go go far in awards season. I feel it's definitely already um, in contention for some, some lower nominations, but hopefully it can push all the way to the forefront. Um, but yeah, I feel like it's one of those films that like, it looks like an awards film. It's shot like a very like high caliber, like it's traditional, but it's like a high caliber film. Um, and I feel like it just, it may also be, and I don't actually don't know why I hadn't mentioned this before, but just the editing of this film is something that like could really make or break it. And luckily this, the editing of this film really does make it and kind of brings it everything full circle and ensures that this is going to be an unforgettable film. And one that like, I'm, well, I'm thinking of anything as a Netflix release. Everyone thought it was going to be discussed for ages really didn't last more than two, three weeks. Hopefully this film will have a much longer shelf life than I'm thinking of ending things does. I'm curious, Diego, as a fan of both films, which one do you prefer? Like I said, and like you mentioned before, I like abstract films much more than kind of, um, like I said, the more it pushes boundaries, that's what really kind of like entices me just to see how many risks can be taken and how many can be pulled off successfully in an artistic uh, way, manner. But, so I'd say I have to give it to, I'm thinking of ending things I'd say. But again, I'm thinking of ending things I gave it maybe like an A plus. I'd give this film an A. It's a very, very tight race. Honestly, on rewatches, they could flip flop. Um, but yeah, like I said, both, um, I'd say both are in the top five of, I don't, I don't know, I don't know about top five, but they're both definitely in my top 10 of the year so far. Uh, on the opposite side of the spectrum is uh, the Chloe Grace Moretz vehicle, uh, Shadow in the Cloud, which, um, as I was uh, mentioning to Carson, reminded me of uh, last year's Black Christmas in its uh, dialogue that just is so flat. Um, it's It was fascinating to me that it's a radio play almost the entire film and that was supposed to engage the viewer and it, it to me it did not at all um there were so many laughable moments um where uh she would do things so out of the possibility of reality um that I, there's nothing to connect to for me. Um, it, it was just a true, and it's a Max Landis script. So that's <laughs> another aspect that's surprising that he did a feminist romp. <laughs> I don't say this lightly, and I really don't want to be rude. This was my least favorite film of the festival. And the one word I would use to describe it is incompetent. I think this is a genuinely incompetent film. 
Um, again, going to backtrack on what I said about keeping the audience guessing. This is a film that initially sets itself up to be this claustrophobic thriller of, oh, we see shadows in the clouds. You know, what, you know, hint the title. Um, is it, you know, what is happening? Is it just an enemy plane? Is it this monster? What is happening? Completely abandons that very early on. Like it actually starts to kind of work. Granted, the dialogue is unbearable. This is the most annoying dialogue I've ever heard of the year at least, possibly longer. Um, the film tries to create these characters that are very, you know, sexist, but they just come off as so unbearably annoying. And it never, like, this is a film that needed to use subtlety and it throws subtlety out the fucking window. It is genuinely horrendous when it comes to subtlety, but it sets itself up as, as a claustrophobic thriller. Granted, the dialogue is atrocious. The accent from Chloe Grace Moretz is horrible. It's forced and unbearable. Um, but, you know, at least you have the setting. She's in this little, you know, part of the airplane. You have the view of the sky. There's shadows, whatever. It's going fine. Completely abandons that. Then it finds this middle act, which is bizarre. It just doesn't commit to anything. And it's horrible. A plot twist, which is genuinely, like you said, laughable. Granted, everything in this movie felt laughable. Um, not even in a fun way, though. Let's be clear. There's movies you can laugh and have fun with. You laugh at this and just make fun of it. And it's atrocious. Um, Plot twist, which is horrible. Then it turns into a CGI action movie, which isn't good. The CGI in this film is not good. Um, it, it's bad. I, I'm like not to horribly, you know, shit on this film. I really, you know, don't want to do that. It is a Max Landis script. So, you know, fuck him at least. Um, genuinely though, like when I look at this film, I think the number one word I find is incompetent. I think this is a beyond stupid film. Well, I was a little bit maybe more positive than you guys. I gave it a slightly positive review, but only slightly. I felt that Chloe Grace Moretz's uh, performance was fine. Um, Roseanne Ling's direction, I feel, um, well, like I said, the script was atrocious. I feel that her direction does show that um, she has at least some sort of a future, maybe like directing like bigger blockbuster films. Like for like if it was just viewed through that lens, I feel like it was fine. I feel the main problem here, um, and that, I mean, in TIFF Midnight, because I premiered at TIFF Midnight Madness, and for that section, it was fine. But I think the problem here was really giving this film a festival run. It's definitely one of those films that maybe for wider audiences, they enjoy it. But really, for kind of the festival crowd, I really don't see, um, oh, obviously, they're trying to find distribution. But I really don't see how this could have really succeeded for the festival crowd. It's very, very, very conventional. There are some twists, but they are laughable. Um, again, the script is atrocious. Um, you can definitely tell those Max Landis influences here and there. And maybe if I didn't know it was Max Landis, maybe I'd be like, okay, like that's just some cringy dialogue. But since it's Max Landis, I just know that like, okay, it's inexcusable. Cause it's like, you know, all the subtext going on into that dialogue. Cause like, we've had more than enough of seeing kind of what goes on in his head, which I don't think anyone wants to know more of. Um, but again, the CGI it was fine. It was, it was like a fine action movie. Like it was just like, okay, whatever. But it was really one of those like B-movie schlock blockbusters um, that I originally just watched for the name only. And I feel it may be successful. Well, nowadays, I don't know if it'll go theatrical or get a VOD release. It's not going to, maybe if it went to a big streaming service, this could have a future, but I believe it's getting released by Vertical and Redbox Entertainment, which is like a big like oof. Like, I don't think that spells any good future for the film. Obviously, like I said, I wish the best on 
all films as they find distribution and become successful. But I don't see how this one will find much success um, anywhere, frankly. Um, like I said, maybe if they can get a really good marketing campaign for like a wider crowd, it could work. The only positive is that I really do think that Chloe Grace Moretz's performance was good and that the director does have a very good future um, in blockbuster films in the coming years. The one thing I will say I liked though, uh, was the opening, the little animated sequence, uh, which does not fit with the rest of the film, but I loved it. Um, I thought it was that, really fun. Uh, the uh, the overall story of that nightmare at twenty thousand feet aspect um, drug on way too long, um, and I I think that I don't understand why they didn't cur- uh, change up the script a little bit. Um, I don't know how long in production this has been because I'm surprised that Max Landis is still getting a movie. But uh, I I think there are aspects that could have worked, um, but the dialogue specifically was just, I, I don't think it's savable. Um, you know, talking about uh, its potential, I don't see a future for this one really um, because mm-hmm. the people it's going to um, won't like the ultra violence. So uh, the, it's kind of marketed towards um, and most general horror fans aren't going to be a fan of this. So I, I don't know where it goes from here, but it will be interesting to see what they end up doing with it. It's really curious to me that they put this at AFI Fest because TIFF kind of makes sense, especially if they were planning a theatrical release directly after. We've seen like Halloween, Blair Witch. Like we've seen movies go to TIFF that are very like weird like this that are not necessarily great movies, but they're more genre pieces and, you know, bigger like budget and, you know, not necessarily, you know, typical awards fair, typical festival fair. So TIFF makes sense. And like I said, I mean, you really, with festivals, I know they submit things rather early on. So before COVID, they might have thought they could push a theatrical release a couple weeks after, get a couple, get a bit of buzz and just release it quickly. Um, Them putting at AFI Fest makes me think that they think this is going to have legs or be something really special. Now that AFI Fest hasn't had its fair share of genre last year, they had St. Maud, you know, Um, But normally they have films of like decent craft. I think this is a film that I don't see how the studio watched this and was like, this is going to be good. This is going to have legs Um, unless they were just going for a very quick release right after. Um, But yeah, I'm with Paul. I don't see a future for this film, even if it released on Netflix, let's say, right? Netflix doesn't have the rights to it. But let's say this went to Netflix and just like released. I think it would die within a week. I think it would just be out of the conversation. Um, I don't see any way, even with Chloe Grace Moretz, who people love, like, I don't see this having any future. Yeah, yeah, like, exactly what you guys were saying. Like, I feel, um, honestly, if this had gone, maybe, like, the the Fantasia, um, Fright Fest, maybe even Night Stream, um, I think there's also Grimfest uh, route, it could have done well, because, like I said, I know that even though this may look like a big blockbuster, or at least, like, a more mainstream film, it actually had no major studio backing. And like I said, Vertical Entertainment and Redbox picked it up. But before that, it was pretty much an independent film. So I could see why they tried to at least go to festivals. Um, it's kind of clear that this was accepted more for the names rather than um, any technical merits. But again, I feel like 
if I were them, I mean, honestly, who knows what the pandemic will bring, but I just keep quiet until there's a, a free week um, with no, no big film and just put it out there, dump it out there, maybe put a little bit of marketing. But like you guys were saying, uh, the future for this film is grim. However, there is one film that opened as um, the opening night centerpiece of this film as a special presentation. And it got quite a few raves and some traction as well. I wouldn't necessarily say at worst traction, but in terms of just like major release buzz uh, for sure. And that is I Am Your Woman from uh, director Julia Hart, who directed in the past uh, both Fast Color and this year's Stargirl on Disney Plus, um, which I, that one actually didn't get much buzz because it's a Disney Plus release. But I know Fast Color um, has gotten a little bit of a like a just like kind of long standing long legs because I know like especially with um, the themes of representation at its forefront, um, kind of more and more people have been seeing it, even though in its original release, it wasn't as it, sorry, it didn't have as much exposure. However, I feel that with this film and I'm going to delve into this after you guys give your thoughts, but I feel that this will definitely bring much more exposure uh, to both Hart herself and everyone involved in the film. So what did you guys think about this one? You know, Julia Hart is really, I think, one of the most interesting up and coming talents there is because every single one of her projects feels just completely different. Fast Color obviously got a lot of praise. Stargirl earlier this year, I didn't like it. I think it's a genuinely bad film, but it's more of a teen film. Uh, coming of age story and then this one I had no clue I, again I don't watch trailers so I really had no clue what to expect here I found this to be a genuinely like good thriller um, I will say like I don't think this one is spectacular it has this backbone of feminism but it never really I think dives into any topic that elevates the material super past just being a really solid thriller but I found that this was like extremely anxiety inducing it does start to repeat itself a little bit too much I wish it would have evolved the plot a little bit more um, even if it didn't want to evolve the conversation within it um, but overall like again Julia Hart this is just another genre she goes in and she nails she just kills it I mean this is I, I again it's nothing amazing and I think that that is reflected in the reviews I saw a lot of mixed reviews who said it you know it's okay um, I'm overall I think more positive than most people but even with that I think it's more of just like this is a really solid genre piece rather than a really solid overall film if that makes sense yeah, it definitely does. I was a little uh, more negative than you guys. Um, I think the conceit was interesting uh, to do, you know, what happens to the wife while there's a, you know, thriller action movie going on in the background. But uh, its overall thesis that her life is just as interesting doesn't seem to be true. Um, everything that we would hear that was going on on the other storyline sounded far more interesting than what we were watching. Um, so that was, uh, and in that way, I'm not sure what the movie ends up being if it's not successful in its own pitch of what it's supposed to be. Um, I, I don't particularly find baby narratives uh, consistently, both in this and Shadow in the Cloud. Um, there's a certain aspect of like we can just add a child in and it'll give people um, a certain amount of stakes that I didn't feel like this particularly earns. Um, but I, I think Brosnahan did a great job though. Um, 
I have only seen her as the, you know, Mrs. Maisel quirkiness. And this was a, a real big change for her. So that was uh, interesting. It's good to see that outside of Maisel, she'll be able to really perform. Yeah, yeah. I was a little bit more positive on this one. Um, just first off, right off the bat. Okay, yeah, I would admit that um, it could have been a little bit more engaging, especially um, when juxtaposed with um, the father, I believe. I feel like the story in the background um, could have been a little bit more interesting um, compared to this um, storyline that she chooses to focus on. But I feel that um, it was good enough and it was engaging enough that honestly, like I, I didn't find myself thinking much about what was going on with the husband and rather kind of just in the in the wife's mindset um so i really i i think for me at least that aspect of it worked well also um just kind of like the the whole look of the film the feel of the film just uh julia hart's direction overall as carson was saying it kind of it does show that she is a talent to behold um i definitely see her just climbing up right up the ladder just doing the projects she wants a uh, genre hopping and just becoming just getting better and better as she goes on and again, um, I found there were actually quite a, like I said, maybe like the first, um, the first parts were maybe not as engaging, but I do feel that especially like the, the second act and the third act as well were very, very engaging, um, especially the club scene or that scene where she's going through the club, um, where it kind of gets a little bit more into high octane thrills. Um, there were, I noticed there were quite a few long shots there that kind of just really sucked you in. And I enjoyed that. I thought it was a one take. It wasn't a one take, but still. Um, there were quite a few long shots there that were really engaging. I also found the score as well to kind of like aid the thrilling atmosphere of it. So I found that the whole thrills part and the whole part of it focusing on kind of like the feminist uh, narrative and the feminist themes rather than just kind of like what's going on with the husband, which is normally the protagonist of films like this. I found it to be refreshing. And I found, again, with Fast Color and with here, you can see that themes of just representation. And you can see that she's really trying to kind of like represent all these different viewpoints. And even though like some people like, like I know you, Carson, didn't think she fully carried through with that. I found that especially in an industry like this where there's more calls for representation and for showing different points of views. Her effort at least is admirable from her, because from her point of view, uh, the work she's doing and the work she's at least trying to do shows that as she evolves as a director and a writer, she could really um, just become one of the most prominent voices in this industry for sure in the coming years. So that was it from our English narrative features at AFI Fest. And that kind of sums up um, our general film review portion of this AFI Fest special. But now I want to move into um, what was your experience uh, with the festival like uh, to both Carson and Paul? I want to ask that uh, because, again, this is AFI's first virtual edition. I know they had quite a few changes last year, even though it was still physical. But in an era where pretty much every festival is virtual and every festival is trying to adapt in way, in certain ways or other and, Sorry, in certain ways, um, it's resulted in wildly different festival experiences. And I'm just curious to hear what you guys thought of this installment of the AFI Fest. Uh, well, right off the bat, I was uh, really missing their horror section. Um, they took, I'm thinking, I'm, I think there were only like two or three that were truly horror and they just put them in the other categories instead of separating them and there was something about having the midnight madness aspect that i really missed this year even virtually 
um, just having them be a movie that plays uh, kind of ruins the, and especially when we were talking about Shadow in the Cloud, that's the kind of, you know, watching it at midnight after a couple drinks, that's a better spot for it than, you know, midday. Um, other than that, though, I thought it was very clean. Um, I'm liking virtual festivals more than real festivals. I don't have to choose between movies constantly and I'm able to watch, you know, as many as I want because I'm just at home. Um, so I've really enjoyed it. What about you, Carson? Yeah, I agree overall on the film festival on the online part, because you do get to see more. You can see it, as I mentioned, in our New York episode, like you can see, you can kind of cater what you're in the mood for. If you're not in the mood for a documentary, it's not like, oh, just now's the screening. You have to watch it. You can kind of pick and choose a little bit more. I mean, I've never seen 30 films at the AFI Film Festival. Um, so, you know, it speaks right there to itself. But it is kind of interesting compared to all the other ones. This is the main, like, large film festival I attend. So it was a little bit bittersweet, um, you know, because you think, oh, now is the time. Granted, this year it's in October rather than November. They moved it up, which I, you know, I'm mixed on. But you miss not sitting, you know, I know exactly where I'd queue up for each of these films. It's weird not having the galas be in the big theater. Um, so it is a little bit bittersweet, especially with this one. You know, I, oh, I'm not going to go get my ramen from this place and that, you know, where it is because it basically takes place in a mall. Um, you know, it is a little bit bittersweet more than the other ones just because this is like a film festival I genuinely love going to. Um, but I agree there are clear benefits and I get why they reduced this uh, schedule. There was not nearly as many films, um, especially, you know, Midnight Madness. There was no galas. It was all just special presentations. Um, it all makes sense. You know, you're doing what you can. Um, there's also just not that many like large films necessarily. Normally AFI Film Festival has some pretty heavy hitters for releases. And I know this year there was a lot of rumors. Oh, will News of the World be here? Will Judas and the Black Messiah? Uh, they tricked everyone into thinking Promising Young Woman would be here and it wasn't. Um, but I still, you know, very enjoyable. I completely understand and appreciate all the choices they did. Ran very smoothly. Uh, giving critics the open window where they basically have three days to view whatever film they have. Um, I thought was rather good. Everything ran smoothly. Uh, so I appreciate this festival, though definitely hoping next year I'll be in LA attending it physically. Yeah, so um, from my perspective, this was my first AFI Fest overall. So again, I don't have that comparison of the physical edition versus this edition. But just to compare it to kind of TIFF and New York Film Festival, this one did work a bit differently. That one was more platform-based, uh, where we had our own press platform. And for this one, it was kind of more of like we had to reserve our own spots. Um, and we did kind of have that audience experience, which I guess it was a little bit refreshing after TIFF and New York Film Festival, just being kind of more like press and industry. Uh, the fact that we had this kind of audience perspective um, on this one, because we actually got... Um, all the films like at the same times as general audiences would. Um, obviously, I not there were a couple where I was sent early press screeners for, but I had to request those separately. And for the ones through the festival, um, they were just at the same time as audiences. Um, just the the administration here, they were super nice, super kind. Um, every interaction I had with them was great. I mean, this is, I'd say it's been like pretty common theme across all the virtual film festivals that all these people have really stepped up and shown their best sides as they deal with us, which I really appreciate just all around. And also one thing that I noticed here that I didn't notice in TIFF or New York Film Festival 
is that here I liked it actually how they had, because um, when you press play on a film, they had a little intro, um, like just like uh, the festival intro. They had the festival director talk about it. Then they had for some films, like the actual, um, the people like, for instance, like for special presentations, like I'm Your Woman, they had like, I believe Julia Hart. They had uh, Julia Hart. They had Rachel Brosnan introduce the film. And then like afterwards, each film would come with a Q&A and it would play right after. Because I know like for TIFF in New York, you had to wait a couple of days and it would be in this whole different portal. Um, but for AFI Festo, it was nice to kind of just have that pre-recorded festival experience. And I feel that that did aid a little bit in creating that kind of like homemade festival experience. So I also appreciated that as well. There were a lot of films that um, overlapped with a bunch of festivals. And as you were saying, Carson, there were quite a few less premieres or like less bigger names attached. For what this festival was trying to achieve and with the resources and limitations it had, it did a very fine job in pulling off a great virtual festival. And hopefully I'll be there in person next year. So to round out this festival special edition of Clappercast, the Global Film Podcast, we like to end on each of our personal top three picks of the entire festival. So Carson, what were your top three picks? Hey, I'm actually prepared this time. Uh, so top three, number three, I'm going to go with Nine Days. Incredibly original film, just incredibly well done. Um, that is a film where like, it just so easily could have fallen off into being a pretentious garbage and it just held firm so well. Number two will be New Order. I mean, I know there's controversy. We've already talked about that, but I genuinely love this film. I found it to be one of the most captivating and shocking films of the year. Um, I enjoyed it. You know, I'm fully willing to engage in a conversation and change my opinion. Um, but on a first watch, I really enjoyed it. And then number one is The Father, one of my favorite films of the year. I think that is truly just like stunning cinema. Uh, believe the hype with that one. And Nomadland, to be fair, granted, Nomadland is not part of this festival. I'll throw my love in there. It's my number one film of 2020. Um, but I'm happy this is a year where like all these films that we've been getting all this hype for, uh, it's really delivering for me. And I love The Father. So number one of the festival. And Paul? I'm going to have to go with Nine Days. Agreed. Uh, the Father. And then I'm going to surprise myself and say my donkey, my lover and I is my third favorite. <laughs> um, it's just, it's, it's just the kind of like nice, you know, simple movie that I kind of have missed, um, recently, especially it was such a breath of fresh air in the middle of like this festival of very dark movies. Um, all of a sudden this one about a girl and her donkey is just like, <laughs> um, so yeah, those would be my three. And yeah, for me, it would have to be um, number three would have to be nine days again, very ambitious. Um, while I didn't fully make it to the heights I expected, it was still very ambitious um, and very refreshing to watch a film like nine days. My number two would have to be again, the father, another one that just shocked me to my core, wasn't expecting it to be this good, this inventive once again. And my number one, as you guys all know, will have to be News Order. Right now, it does have, like Carson was saying, a special place in my heart. Um, it's kind of flip-flopping between my number one and my number two spot of top uh, films of 2020 with Last and First Men. Um, but again, I will really want to kind of delve into that discussion, especially when some more diverse critics get a chance to watch them and rewatch them, because I really feel like there's going to be a lot to unpack there and that 
I may go from loving it to hating it, or I may go from loving it to loving it even more after these discussions. So this is a film I am still very open to discuss and change my viewpoint on. Well, so that's it for this week's episode of Clappercastic Global Film Podcast. So where can we find everyone on social media? So you can find me on Twitter at BP underscore movie reviews on Letterboxd, just Carson Tamar. Um, everything for me is at price like tag, uh, Letterboxd, Twitter, any of those. And you can find me at, at the Diego Andaluz, and that's A-N-D-A-L-U-Z on both Twitter and Letterboxd, as well as Clappercast, the global film podcast at, at the global film pod on Twitter. And you can find all the latest releases of film and television reviewed at our sister site, www.clapperltd.co.uk and find our social links on Clapper at Facebook and at ClapperLTD on Twitter. Make sure to rate, subscribe, or follow us to be notified when the next episode comes out. And thank you all for listening and we will be back next week to discuss all things cinema. To celebrate our one-year anniversary over at Clapper, we have commissioned over a dozen horror clothing designs ranging from Midsummer, Hereditary, Get Out, Raw, and classic characters, new and old, that can be found on Bonfire. You can find the link in the description below. Thank you for listening.